0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And
1: I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's a weekly podcast. We bring you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And indeed, this week we had an exclusive with the chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, a well-listened-to voice on Wall Street.
0: And it was a wide-ranging conversation. It was cool to catch him. At this moment, in part because of everything going on in the world, but we were also catching him candidly coming off chatting with students at his alma mater. And he was thinking back to his time you know, living in the international house, borrowing a ton of money Mm -hmm. at high interest rates to get into Colombia. And it was a game changer for him.
1: Right. And I really think it was a gut check because we talk so much about some major macro issues, whether it's interest rates or U.S.-China trade or the IPO market. uh, And he really had some thoughtful, insightful things to say.
0: Here's that conversation. And you were with some students uh, just a few minutes ago. Did it take you back to your early days? Yeah, maybe jealous. Yeah. I mean,
2: <laughs> apart from the sirens, right? right. But uh, yeah, I was at Columbia in the mid 80s and uh, it was, you know, it was a great experience. So it was, it was fun. I just did a lunch and learn class with about 150 kids and they are kids. So, uh, they weren't born when I was at business school here.
1: What do you want to know from them when you're talking with them? Because I feel like the world and so many different industries, your industry also going through lots of changes. What do you want to hear from them?
2: Well, it's what kind of culture, what kind of company they're really looking to work at. I mean, what 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 matters to this generation different from my generation? You know, I grew up uh, at a time when Solomon Brothers and Drexel, and you know, that was all the rage on Wall Street. It's a very sort of hyper intense environment. I mean, these uh, young folks, they're much more interested in social impact. Um, in the values of the organization and, and just trying to share and exchange how we think about our role in society as, a, as a, obviously a global bank.
0: Well, let's go all the way back to your arrival here uh, on campus. This was- Do a we big... have to? That yeah. was so yeah. long ago. But it was a big move for you. I mean, they, yeah. it was defining uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. What do you remember most about arriving and then what did you take? Because you notably. came from
1: Australia and you were a lawyer already, right? Yeah,
0: I came, I came here to sort of change careers.
2: What I remember most is the interest rate on my student loan. Yeah, was twenty-four well, oh, percent, which I think is a world record, <laughs> right? And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because America welcomed me to come here to learn to grow, and and I just it was unbelievable. I arrived on a very hot August day, August the second, nineteen eighty-five. It was that classic New York sweltering heat. And it just, it was all new. It was just, it was so exciting. And the campus, uh, this university, which is, you know, extraordinary. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have been happier, honestly, to, to be given that chance. And that's why I think, you know, immigration, uh, welcoming foreigners, giving them an opportunity
0: to contribute. And I'm still here, right? you know, 30 plus years later. Because you had an experience living in international house, I believe, and so many people are exposed to many different cultures. I mean, you were living in it in in a lot of ways. How how did that affect sort of your worldview?
2: Yeah, I used to play uh, chess every Sunday night with um, a Danish guy who listened to Frank Sinatra with candles on, (laughs) uh, you know, in in the dark. And it was uh, so, you know, and and one of my closest friends, uh, I was a guy from Lyon in France, and another guy from Morocco. Uh, so you 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 learn to experience the cultures and the diversity that this world has and one of the great things about a university like this is it brings people like that together who are all motivated they've all you know, they're obviously uh, they're talented uh, and they want to move forward so I, I I thought it was a tremendous experience
1: well having said that James I do wonder what you think about kind of the pushback that we're getting um, from the current administration when it comes to folks coming in from other countries to study here maybe start companies here but it's not that Happy an environment or a hospitable environment for them right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, this country has always been a country of immigrants, and uh, celebrating and welcoming those immigrants and seeing how they've contributed to this society here. I mean, it's it's been one of the great elixirs of what's made America different. Is most countries people are trying to move out of to get a better life. This is one of the few countries in the world, and Australia was like that, where a lot of people are trying to get into. And I think welcoming those immigrants, providing opportunities for them, obviously having sensible border control, which I support. Mm-hmm. People shouldn't come here illegally, right? I didn't. you come through passport control, you earn your way into this country, you set the test, you, I became a citizen. I mean, you do it the right way. but having as many people as you can bring talent into the US I think has been one of the great hallmarks of the s- success of the last century.
0: When you think about talent as well, you know, it used to be a much more prescribed path it feels like out of business school you went to a big consulting company you went to wall street you know you talked about hearing from the students wanting to have a social impact what do you draw in terms of student and talent from a business school like columbia and and what's the case you make to them for working on wall street right now well there are there
2: are great careers on wall street there always have been i mean things ebb and flow i think the largest recruiter I don't know for sure, but I think Amazon might be the largest or one of the largest at the business school now. So at different points, the sort of cadence and flow and focus changes as society is changing and as business opportunities are changing. Uh, Listen, Wall Street is highly sophisticated, uh, very intellectually interesting, very dynamic because you're in the markets. As you guys know, this is what you do. Um, So for a lot of people, not everybody, uh, for a lot of people, it remains an extremely attractive uh, career option. So let's
1: talk about the markets. Mm. you're in it we obviously watch it day in and day out there's so many big macro stories that are out there uh whether it's brexit whether it's u.s china trade how do you see the market the global market environment right now
2: well you know it's it's a conundrum at one level we've got record low unemployment uh we do still have global growth Uh, the u.s economy the most important economy in the world is uh, performing strongly china's still performing strongly um europe europe is obviously mixed but it's been mixed for two decades now. Um, So at one level, the fundamentals are actually quite strong. Uh, At the other level, the sense of confidence, there isn't the confidence and there's a sense of inevitability we're at the end of a cycle. You know, it it doesn't have to be. You don't, I mean, statistically, there is a recession every seven years, right? Each year, you begin with a 15% chance of recession, but it doesn't have to be. You know, in Australia, they haven't had a recession for 28 years in a row. Right. So, right Why now, is there so
1: much pressure, though, then, on the Federal Reserve to continue cutting rates? Does that make sense?
2: Well, because the economy is slowing. Okay. The economy is slowing. And, you know, the job of the Fed is to sort of balance monetary policy with economic outlook and fiscal policy. And, you know, they should feather rates. Obviously, when the economy is getting hot, their job is to raise rates, slow it down, and, and the reverse. So, you know, I've supported the latest uh, Fed rate cut, and I suspect they'll do one or two more. But then it's time for a pause and really absorb this because the problem with cutting is it's one of the few tools you've got. So if you give it away too easily, what do you have if we have a real problem?
0: I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, sort of squaring some of the different elements out there, and especially businesses that certainly seem more cautious with a consumer that isn't showing much signs of, of caution at all. How do you square those things as you talk to your Customers, and what do you see out there that, that could help explain that dichotomy, as it were?
2: Well, we're, you know, we're, we're in a bit of an echo chamber. If you're a business leader, you go to business leadership meetings, we all talk to each other, we sort of, you know, we bounce off each other. So a little bit of it is gee, we must be at the end of the cycle. The Fed's cutting rates, we must be about to have a recession. By the way, we've had an inverted yield curve, which yeah. has been highly predictive of, of a recession. So there's some hard evidence that things are. More likely to slow down than accelerate at this point. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So as executives whose job is to think about capital investment over multi-years, you would be prudent in being cautious at this point. There's nothing wrong with that. Consumers aren't yet experiencing that. They've got very cheap debt. Housing is starting to recover. Their consumer credit, apart from student loans, sadly, uh, is in very strong shape. So the consumer balance sheet is still very strong. And that's why it's lagging where the corporate balance sheet and corporate attitude is.
1: Are there implications, though, from having rates at such a low level for such a protracted time?
2: I mean, I, it's it's all about finding equilibrium between mm. economic growth and, and the cost of money. So I mean, there are only implications if it creates a bubble, right? That's a, a cheap money eventually will create a bubble. We're a long way from that now. You don't see any
0: of that? No, I'm seeing no bubbles. And how do you manage your business, given all of those different inputs and and outputs? Where do you hire? Where do you maybe stay steady? Uh, Where do you invest across the the empire of Morgan Stanley? Empire. (laughs) Never thought about it that way. But uh, we're just a simple business. Um,
2: You know, firstly, we're very long the U.S. Our wealth management business is... I think 90 plus percent US, um, and at least half our securities business here. So that's a good thing, right? This is an $18 trillion economy, strongest economy in the world, most important economy in the world. I'm happy to be in the US. Uh, we're obviously, you know, we've been aggressively building our Asia business, which is now I think 14% or so of the company. Uh, with the trade talks, things have slowed clearly across uh, parts of Asia. Uh, so that's has played out. But, but our job is to try and look past one, three, six month hiccups or slowdowns. Our job, certainly my job, is to think out five plus years. And you know, traders are thinking every five minutes, I'm trying to think five years. And Can right we now- Can you do that in
1: this environment though? Because it does feel like we, we've been going back and forth on let's say go trade.
2: You've got to, we've been around for 85 years. I yeah. mean, we're, we're managing uh, 2.6 trillion of people's money. They're not all selling into the market on one day and all buying on the next day. No, things, things actually move in, in small increments. It's, it's more things like the public markets and companies going public that you know, or M&A transactions happening or not. But most of our core businesses are relatively immune to what's going on right now. You wouldn't see the impact on our wealth management business greatly at all.
0: Well, let's talk about the public markets mm. because it's been quite a year for Gave you. An for co- there, you right? Really did you <laughs> I just like drive the, the trucks right, right up there? Uh, I mean, the public markets have really been <laughs> something to watch, to, to say the least, and especially talk about cognitive dissonance. You know, between sort of private market valuations and public market valuations. What do you see going on there? Why is that happening? Well, on the other hand, the public markets are record highs. Right. Right. So w- where is the dissonance? Is The it dissonance is in the IPO markets in, in some ways, yeah. you know, some of these unicorn, mega unicorn companies going public.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, there's there's uh, rounds of fundraising. Companies have tended to go public later and done, you know, four, five, six rounds. Um, with that comes some risk, obviously, because you've got a lot of investors who've come in relatively late before you go to full public uh and I think we've seen that in some, of, you know, some of these companies that look like they're going to go public now lower than what the last couple of rounds were raising. Um, that's unusual. We haven't seen that for a long time. Um, it's also a function. There was some very frothy money floating around in the early rounds. Of Has that days. changed? Do you think? Do you think the private money's get getting smarter at this point? I think point? the market's pretty efficient. Yeah. You know, these people aren't stupid who, who, are, who are making these investments. These are very savvy people and. And listen, this is this is sort of the corrective mechanisms that occur. They see a couple of companies go public at lower than whatever their last valuation was. That's a good corrective mechanism. That's okay. Back to the bubble question. That starts. That pinpricks the bubbles that are out there.
1: But some of those that have come public this year, whether it's an Uber, whether it's a Lyft, you know, came out with a bang, but then it pulled back. So it's the market telling you, well, wait a minute, you weren't worth that much? Or, or what is it? Does it take some time with these companies that have been around for a while that are still not profitable, yeah. but have been around for a long time? How do you make sense of that?
2: Uh, you know, the, uh, the market can be very stupid in the short run. Um, in, in the medium term, it occasionally gets things wrong. In the long term, you're the one who's stupid, <laughs> right? Right, so, right. Uh, you know when When Facebook time will tell yeah totally when Facebook went public um, I went on TV I can't remember if it was with you guys or not let's just say it was was, yeah it was obviously it was (laughs) and You know, I said, uh, this is a great, great new company that has been formed by incredibly innovative people who have created something that didn't exist before. That should be celebrated. The fact it traded at a value in the weeks and months after it went public below what people wanted on the day of the issue. Okay, that happens. But look at it. Give it time. Give it a year. And now... It's it's something like six times the valuation, you know, in a relatively short period of time. So we should all wish to have Facebook's problem. Right. So I I give this I give this a little bit of time. I'm not. I wouldn't be too, too wound up about it. Are you seeing
1: more issues hmm? that your team? Are you talking to more people who want to bring more companies to public? How active is it right now? Uh, I do,
2: are they are they not bringing them public because of this? I think it's making people. More realistic about valuations, you know, for some of these unicorns. I think there's a little reality check has gone into the system, and that's that's okay. This is what the market does. You know, mm-hmm. back to my point, the market in the long run gets it right. And the short run is how you find opportunities.
0: When you think about this, uh, to maybe overstate a little bit, this negative yield world that, that we're living in, how does that change your of the market? How does it change the way you may deploy some assets and may deploy some of your teams around the world?
2: Well, firstly, I'd be very surprised at where rates are. I'll just say that up front. I thought the 10-year at this point, I'd expected by the end of this year the 10-year would be around 3%. I I was dead wrong, okay? Um, So, you know, a negative yield curve has been historically highly predictive of recession, but as Janet Yellen, former Chair Yellen said, uh, it's not necessarily so. It doesn't necessarily lead to a recession. Uh, so how does it change our business? It, it doesn't. You know, we're, we run our business based upon what we see going on in the broader economy, rather than where rates mm-hmm. are trading on any particular day, and I think in the last week you've seen the 10-year recover about 10, 15 basis points, so, you know, we'll see.
1: You know, I'm curious, too, about the role of technology in finance. We see it increasingly so. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the incorporation of it at Morgan Stanley and where you see it kind of all going, because it's certainly a big part of what they're being te- you know taught at the Columbia Business School, and more and more so, whether it's algorithms, whether it's yeah. engi- engineers coming in and coding. Where do you see it all playing out?
2: It's interesting. I just came from our uh, monthly risk committee meeting to our meeting this morning, and uh, we had a whole section on electronic trading and... Um, yes what we're doing in that space and how it's bleeding from equities into the fixed income space. Um, You know, technology has been driving Wall Street, dirty little secret, for a very long time. You know, we set up our first electronic trading businesses in the mid-90s. And it's like everybody suddenly discovered technology because of fintech. Um, There's a lot of innovation going on in the fintech sector, for sure. And we are partnering with a lot of those companies. But we are, you know, we spend upwards of $4 billion on technology. We have centers of competence in machine learning, robotics, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, big data management, uh, obviously our cyberspace is huge. So we, we have the resources and I think the intellectual horsepower to be at the forefront of a lot of the new technology development, but not all of it we wanna do in house. Right. So we're actively looking to partner with large and small companies, whether it's in software development, uh, in data management in particular, and you know embrace it so it's it's very much a part of everything we do
1: digital currencies as well
2: uh we yeah we're helping uh clients uh hedge and manage their exposures to digital currencies we haven't been um you know we haven't set up a digital business unit uh focused on you know the various forms of cryptos per se because much more interested in the blockchain technology i don't know it's just another form of stored value to me and i'm You know, people, maybe I'm dead wrong about this. I've been quite conservative on this for a long time. Um, I see much more
0: value around the blockchain technology supporting the currency than the currency itself. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned sort of various partnerships, especially on the fintech side. From a competitive standpoint, where do you see the most competition across your lines of business at this point?
2: well, in, in wealth management, clearly, yeah. you know, the online space, but but that's not new. I mean, Schwab and E-Trade and Meritrade have been around an awfully long time. They've been doing online, you know, digital business. It was just called something different, which was direct brokerage, right? right? It had a different name. Uh, so that's always been competitive. I think um, uh, in the asset management space, obviously, the challenge of a lot of the package ETF. Indexing versus the uh, you know traditional long-only active managed, but a lot of our businesses are very complex, require global capability. You know, hedging, uh, you know, a currency exposure in Japan, uh, being long certain rate securities in you know Australia. I mean, we have 24 hours. It's a lot of it is. Um, it's it's not that it's not challenged competitively, but most of our challenge comes from our traditional competitors, the big banks.
1: James, I'm always curious, you know, we spend our time so much talking about Fed policy, yield curves, U.S. China trade policy. What is it that you folks at Morgan are spending so much time having conversations about? What is it that we're not talking about that really deserves a little bit more attention?
2: Leadership, culture, um, creating an organization where diverse employees don't feel included but feel, not just included, but feel they belong. That's something I felt very strongly about. The whole diversity inclusion discussion implies somebody invited you into the room. No, I want you to belong. It's your room. So we talk about a lot of the qualities that get at uh, do employees respect your institution, want to be part of your institution, want to make their careers and lives there. The the, the the macro stuff, it blows, right? I mean, okay, rates were 2.5%. Now they're 1.5%. Is Morgan Stanley fundamentally changing its strategy because of that? Of course not. But if we can't attract really talented, committed people who do things the right way, have the right values, then, then we're going nowhere. Mm. So I'm very, once your strategy is in place, and I think we have a really sound strategy, it's all about reaffirming the cultural values and putting the leadership in place for the next 10 and 15 years who can drive those values. Are we
1: making inroads? Though? I want to ask about diversity because I feel like we've been talking about diversity, parity, women, you know, issues on Wall Street for a long, long time. And we're still struggling and, to get and, them.
2: And, and we will be talking about it for a long, long time. I'd, I'd share one fact with you. Uh, this year, and this wasn't by design, it was an outcome. Uh, this year, for the first time ever, more than 50% of our intern class, which is 1,000 interns globally, were women. First time ever. Uh, our right. head of China is a woman. Head of Europe, Middle East, Africa is a woman. Co-head of investment banking is a woman. The head of our bank is a woman. I mean, we have senior leadership women in multiple roles, but are they representative of the role of women in society? No, they're not. right? So we've, 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 we've made steps, uh, but it starts with the pipeline at the beginning and then finding ways in which you can keep those folks through all the transitions we make in life have uh, terrific careers at Morgan Stanley.
0: Are those discussions and those efforts becoming easier or harder given the political climate we're in? We live in a pretty, I think it's fair to say, divisive time uh, a hyper political time in a lot of ways how do you cut through all that to make these sorts of decisions I think from a diversity perspective no I think
2: from what is the role of the corporation society yes I think we're being called as CEOs into the public debate much more we're we're our our employees want us to express opinions on a wide range of issues and it's very difficult because you've got a you, you you know, we, we all have personal, I mean, I'm a, I'm a voter, right? I'm a citizen. I have opinions on all these issues. And it can't be just what James Gorman thinks. I'm not the company. It's what what is for the greater good of the whole organization. And I think what a lot of companies are now struggling with is what is our role in society? And this is why the statement came out recently from the CEOs of the roundtable, right. uh, which was basically to embrace the broader stakeholders that we have you can, listen, you can be a bank and run it only for shareholder value, but if society turns against you and nationalizes your bank, that didn't work out so well, (laughs) right? So I've always believed you have to operate in the ecosystem with respect for everybody in that ecosystem.
1: But what's interesting is, and we had a very smart conversation with, um, like we're having right now, but with another individual in the financial community, but talking about, you know, not everybody has the same access to education, you know, and I do wonder, you know. What that has done in terms of creating the gaps within our society so how do we deal with that
2: well there i mean there are gaps in 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 every society and not everybody starts off with the same access i mean it's you know you're like i was lucky i was born in melbourne to the family i was born with and given the education i was given that's why i'm here um so you 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 know there's no all of us know there's no magic wand there are inequalities um
1: but they feel deeper than ever before um,
2: is that wrong I think the gap between the most successful uh, and the least is wider. And I think the minimum wage pressure for the last 30 years has been devastating uh, for a lot of people. I think there are a hell of a lot of people in this country and around the world who have not participated in the economic expansion of the last three decades, which is why the rise of populism has happened. On the other end, nationalism has happened, anti-globalization has happened, anti-immigration has happened. It must be somebody's fault if I didn't get ahead who's that somebody and at the end of the day what a lot of people have decided that somebody is the politicians which is why Brexit has happened and so on so you know i think that was a pretty good warning shot to the power elite so called in the world that y- you can't leave behind large parts of society and expect that to not have ramifications do you expect that that's going to change anytime soon or the power elite listening i think this i think there yeah i think there's a pendulum swinging um, and i think i think there is i think there's some pretty healthy discussions and back to the CEO roundtable you know 200 or so of the top ceos in the country all signed us and it was you know this wasn't controversial this is something we feel and we wanted to express to everybody out there working for our companies or or participating with them
1: last word 20 seconds yeah i'm just thinking you know the next batch of mbas and students what would be your advice
2: Uh, Focus on the job you're paid to do. A lot of young folks come into companies like ours and they're trying to focus on the next job all the time, trying to figure out how to get ahead. You get ahead by doing what you're paid to do really well. You do that, you succeed.
1: That was James Gorman, Morgan Stanley, chairman and CEO, and of course, Columbia Business School alumnus because we spent a day up at the business school.
0: And it is funny. You get somebody in that situation. (laughs) You know, it's a different conversation that I think we would have if we trooped on over to his office. If We had him here in our studio. You know, we're sitting outside. We've got College Walk behind us. Students all around us. He's literally just had a brown bag lunch with a bunch of students. So he was in a different mindset, but clearly a very thoughtful guy across the global markets.
1: You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra.
0: Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg.